Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 19, Feudal Fun with the Franks. The last time we were on our regular historical narrative, we went for a trip around Italy to see what was going on after spending lots of time up north. We saw that the Saracens, the Arabs, had invaded the island of Sicily and had started taking it over. The Duchy of Benevento had become an independent principality and then split up into the principalities of Benevento and Salerno. The Duchy of Naples was still attached to the Byzantine Empire, although effectively it was independent. Byzantium still had Calabria and Puglia, the toe and the heel of the boot that is the Italian peninsula. Spoleto had been absorbed into the Kingdom of Italy, the northernmost part of the peninsula under Frankish control. So now we're back in the north. Let's first of all get back to those fun Franks. Then we'll look at the new social and political system that they brought with them into Italy. We're not going to go off exploring all the various succession struggles of every father, son and brother. A, because it's messy, and B, I'm a bit scared. Travis Dow, over at the History of Germany podcast, has done some episodes on Charlemagne and his descendants. So, if you want more on all the messing around that the Franks did, you might want to check him out. We here at A History of Italy are going, once again, to focus specifically on Italy. So let's start at the Treaty of Verdun in 843, in which the sons of Louis the Pious who had died three years before, divided up the empire yet again. The guy who got the part with Italy in it was Lothar, who also got to be the emperor. The most notable fact regarding Italy for Lothar was that he was considered venerable by the church and was even on his way to beatification just before sainthood, but he didn't quite get there. This was thanks to all the help he gave to the church. Also, in 847, he sent an expedition south against the Saracens who, as we saw a couple of episodes ago, had managed to occupy lands in the Principality of Benevento. Lothar sent his son, another Louis, down, and he performed well. In the year 850, according to the wishes of his father Lothar and the Pope, Leo IV, Louis was made co-emperor and king of Italy. In 851, Louis was back in Benevento again to free it from a band of Saracens, and he also moved north-east to try and free Bari, without much success. In the year 855, Lothar got sick, renounced the throne, and went into an abbey to become a monk. Obviously, he took up the old Carolingian hobby of dividing up his reign between his three sons, Louis, who, as we have seen, got Italy, and the other two, Lothar II and another Charles. 
Six days later, during the night between the 28th and the 29th of September, Lothar died. His body was in the abbey where he died until 1721, when the abbey was restructured and his body was lost. Luckily, in 1860, yes, I'm saying that right this time, 1860, his body was found again. So you can all sit down. You don't need to go rushing off looking for the lost body of Lothar the First. Now back to his son, Louis the Second, known as the Younger, who was now king of Italy and emperor. There was a lot more messing around with his brothers and fighting over the various bits of the empire and peace treaties and more fighting and lots of stuff like that. With regard to Italy again, we can mention that in 863 he got rather annoyed with the Pope Nicholas I at the time, who hadn't wanted to play ball with the matrimonial politics of the Carolingian brothers. Louis took an army down to Rome. He laid siege to the city, but while doing so, he fell ill. He must have taken that as a sign because he ended up making peace with the Pope. Who knows? Maybe old Nicholas was one of the first to engage in biological warfare and perhaps sent out somebody with a bad cold. In any case, Louis headed back up to Pavia, the capital of the Kingdom of Italy, as it had been under the Lombards. Here in Pavia, he convened an assembly to organize a great expedition against the Saracens. In 866, he headed south with a land army, but soon discovered that it was hopeless to try and fight the Saracens without a navy. After all, the efficient, well-kept Roman roads were a thing of the past. He looked to the only other significant force that could still challenge the Arabs, and that. Was the Byzantine Empire? Louis tried to cut a deal with the Byzantine Emperor Basilius. The idea was that the daughter of Louis, another Ermengarde, would marry the son of the Byzantine Emperor and co-emperor Simbatios. In the end, Louis didn't hand over his daughter, and the Byzantine fleet, anchored outside Bari, turned and left. Meanwhile, back up north. Some further dynastic struggles ended in the result that Louis the Younger's uncles, sons of old Louis the Pious, Louis the German, and Charles the Bald, divided up the empire, completely shafting our Louis the Second, the Younger. Rather than get dragged back into the whole mess, Louis decided to try and do something that hadn't been done since the Lombard invasion in 568. And that was to unify the Italian peninsula. He set up his headquarters in Benevento in 871, intending to take over the now practically autonomous fortifications of the Lombards and Byzantines. His campaign didn't last long at all. The prince of Benevento, Adelchi, laid siege to Louis, and he only released him when the king and rightful emperor promised he would not seek revenge. During the siege, a rumor went around that Louis had been killed, and his uncles rushed in to occupy northern Italy. But they found him alive and kicking. They would have to wait. They didn't have to wait that long. After twenty-five years of rule, Louis the Second, the younger, died four years later in eight seventy-five. His uncle Charles the Bald, remember him? 
the guy that wasn't really bald but uh, was rather hairy. Anyway, he rushed over the Alps to claim Italy. So did his brother, Louis the German, not the younger this time, who actually sent his son, Carloman, to do the dirty work. These guys were getting on a bit. In the end, it was Charles the Bald who won out, and on the 25th of December, 875, exactly 75 years after his grandfather of the same name, Charles was crowned emperor by Pope John VIII. He didn't spend a lot of time in Italy. He was almost immediately forced to return to the struggle with his brothers and to deal with a new threat, the encroaching Normans. All of this was a bit too much for Charles, and despite all that hair to keep him warm, he died at the beginning of October 877. This left his son, Carloman, to be crowned King of Italy in the same year by a diet in Pavia. He also didn't have long to enjoy the success. He soon fell into a long illness. In 879, feeling that he was now too weak to govern, he resigned Italy to his brother, Charles the Fat, who became fully legitimized in his role when his brother, Carloman, died in 880. Now, things were really, really messy with this guy also because the Vikings were pushing really hard on the Carolingian Empire, and he wasn't really doing a good job at sorting it out. Plus, he also wasn't too healthy. In 887, Charles the Fat was deposed, and that, in effect, was the end of the Carolingian Empire, and most definitely the end of the Carolingians in Italy. Who came next then? Well, We'll see that in the next episode. I chucked quite a few names at you there, so for the more attentive listeners, I'll quickly go through them again. The others can let their wind wander a bit now. Just remember that from 774 to 887, northern Italy was ruled by the Carolingians. So, just to go over that, from 774 to 813, we had Charlemagne. 781 to 810, so at the same time his son Pippin. 810 to 819, his son Bernard. From 818 to 840, Louis the Pious. From 818 to 850, Lothar. From 844 to 875, Louis II the Younger. From 875 to 877, Charles the Bald. From 877 to 880, Carloman, and from 880 to 887, Charles the Fat. Those were the Carolingian rulers of Italy, or the Kingdom of Italy, which was just northern Italy. Okay, wandering minds, you with us now? Hello? Okay, back we go. Now, when I stop reading Harry Potter in mid-chapter to my daughter, she gets really upset. She's learned that crying does not get her anywhere, but I get some really dirty looks. I hope my listeners will be a bit more patient with me because we now need to stop and take a look at what was happening in Italy under these Frankish kings because after the initial settlement period they started to bring with them a little thing called the feudal system. So, let's have a peek at that. Now, much better podcasters than I have spoken about the feudal system and proper historians have written volumes on it, so we won't go too far down that path. 
will just cover enough to understand how society in Italy was organized in the period we're talking about. The first element we need to look at is the decline of cities. The Romans had founded loads of them all over the empire, and Italy in particular, being the place where the empire originated, was packed. Cities, as anyone who has played the game SimCity or actually been involved in local government will know, are not easy to run. So, when the illiterate barbarian invaders, first the Goths, then the Lombards, then the Franks, came along, they could not substitute the administrators and the technicians to look after the cities. So, if an aqueduct got blocked up, a sewer backed up, or an arch fell, after some time, there was no one left who knew how to fix it. As far as administrative power goes, as local administrators were killed, fled, or died of old age, in Italy in particular, the people had no one else to turn to except for the priests and bishops. The spiritual leaders, who now stepped in also to become administrative leaders. This is part of the reason why today, although most Italian cities have a Roman origin, you will find that the historical center is not built around the Roman Forum, but the cathedral. Now this decline of the city also meant that there were no town markets and no surplus economy and no surplus to sell off. The farmers became the consumers of their own goods and they were able to produce just enough to maintain themselves and their families, if they were lucky. This meant that they were particularly susceptible to any sort of crop shortage or natural disaster or even a spell of bad weather or drought. Therefore, they had to turn to stronger, richer men who could help protect them both from attack and from hunger. They with enough land and manpower to accumulate excess food in their granaries. This means that the start of feudalism was a volunteer effect. Indeed, it was not, at least not always, rich landowners squeezing out small farmers, but the small farmers themselves looking for protection. In turn, the landlords were interested in maintaining them healthy and happy, so they could work for them. They were an asset. In a country that had a total population of 4 or 5 million, today the Italians are around 64 million, land was not a problem. The problem was finding people to work that land. I don't want it to sound, however, like it was all fun and games for the small farmers. Indeed, they were tied to the land and could not marry without permission from the Signore, the Lord. While the farmers were referred to as coloni, a term which also means colonizer, but in this case didn't. They had to give their lord half of their produce, which wasn't too bad actually because but under Roman rule, the overlords had taken even more. The signore wasn't really interested in trade, but having enough for his little closed system to work. For this reason, there was very little money going around. The Bezant, the Byzantine gold coin, was still in circulation, but there weren't really many of them. Most exchanges came about in kind under a barter system. The center of the estate was the villa, which back then meant a series of buildings, including the Lord's Castle, with a drawbridge and moat and everything for defense, in which the farmers called Balivi could seek refuge. There was also, of course, a little chapel. On a single estate, you could have various villas, 
with the signori moving from one to another. That is why today we have many names of Italian cities that have the word villa in them. So, in general, we mustn't think that life of the colony on the estate was an ideal, happy, carefree life. Indeed, it was often just a question of survival. Yet it was enough. In all of the Italian Middle Ages, there are no reports of peasant revolts or some Spartacus leading slaves to revolution. They were docile and often even devoted to their lord. The concentration of land in few hands created a new landed nobility that slowly substituted the old warrior dukes of the Lombards. When Charlemagne brought his Franks into Italy, things did not change overnight. Some counts were brought in to fill some of the empty spaces, but many dukes remained, and the Frankish takeover was very gradual. Alongside the counties and duchies, marches were created. These were a collection of counties banded together, especially around the more dangerous border regions, and placed under the general authority of a marquis. Often these counts, dukes and marquises would become more powerful than the kings that were supposed to rule over them, especially towards the end and after the Carolingian dynasty. Now these guys had a bit of trouble managing their larger estates, and so they would assign smaller sections called fiefs to others, and that is where the vassal comes in. The vassal would receive his bit of the estate in exchange for his military service to the overlord, and at the end of his life he would have to give it back, unless he had a healthy, robust son who could step in and ask to be confirmed in his fiefdom. This in time became hereditary, basically because the sons did nothing else but train to become soldiers, so they ended up being good ones. They were stuck on the saddle at the age of around five, and that was that. No wimpy studying for them. In time, when the son came of age, he would be made a knight. However, we mustn't think of the chivalrous knights in shining armor here. No saving damsels in distress and, and fighting for truth and justice. These guys were ignorant, violent thugs. And the system was more like the mafia than King Arthur's round table at Camelot. The knight would get the colony to work their lands, and sometimes further divide the land to lower-level vassals, so that at times the last rung, the colony, would have multiple lords to deal with. This was the picture of the ruling class of most of Western Europe. But, once again, things were different in Italy. The whole chivalry thing developed here, but didn't take hold quite as much. Indeed, in time, those same cities which the Romans had founded so many of, plus others that sprung up in time, came back to prominence with a vengeance, making Italy one of the first countries to come out of the so-called Dark Ages. Basically, we traded the whole bravery and chivalry thing for the city-states and then the Renaissance. It's up to you to decide what was the best choice. For the moment, however, the feudal system was also alive and kicking in Italy. And before we head off anywhere else, we have to trudge through what has gone down in history as the feudal anarchy. But that's for next time. For now, thank you very much to everyone for listening. 
Thanks to our regular Patreon donors, Sen and Sean. And if you want to get in touch, remember, you can write at hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media or have a look at maps and timelines that can help you navigate our complicated history. Once again, until next time, thank you very much for listening and arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.